U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined once again by the third officer, who I think, yeah, you know what? You're XO now. Congratulations. Oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. Thank, uh, Thank you. Well, yeah, good to be here. Even better to be here now. Christoph. His name is Christoph. Oh, yeah, sorry. My name's Christoph. Nice to uh, speak to you all again. But we'll see if you're still that happy after the initiation later today. Okay, yes. Anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, that's mandatory. I understand. All right, so we finished up torpedoes last week, so now we're going to get back into where we left off. We were at the American Civil War, the Western Campaign, the... Atlanta campaign, and we are specifically covering the last part of it, at least with the Navy, the Battle of Mobile Bay. This happened. Oh, are you ready to get it away? Oh, yeah. I'm, yes, absolutely. Okay. So this happened August 5th, 1864. You weren't around then, were you? No. As it turns out, I was not. That was, yes, no, I was not. Okay. Wait, were you? No. Okay. So this was between the U.S. and the Confederacy, of course. This was led by, on the U.S. side, David Farragut and Gordon Granger. And on the Confederate side, Franklin Buchanan and Richard L. Page. The strength on the U.S. side was 12 wooden ships, two gunboats, four ironclad, and 5,500 men. Wow. And on the Confederate side, three gunboats, one ironclad, and 1,500 men. It's a little bit of a... Very lopsided, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Mobile Bay a little bit. Mobile is situated near the head of Mobile Bay, which is a natural harbor formed by the Gulf of Mexico. It's about 33 miles long, and the lower bay is about 23 miles at its widest. Now, this bay is deep enough to accommodate ocean-going vessels in the lower half without having to dredge. Now, above the mouth of the Dog River, the water becomes a shoal, which means ocean-going vessels, no-go. When you say ocean-going vessels... Is that of the time that we're talking about, or is that modern times? Because I know, like, they had to make improvements to the Panama Canal, for example, because as ships get bigger, they, their footprint, so to speak, is different. Well, at that time and this time, of course, as well. Wow. Ocean-going vessels had deeper drafts than shallow water vessels. They were bigger. Oh, yeah. They were heavier. They had a deeper draft. And if uh, you go into a bay that's not deep enough, you're going to get caught. That's why I don't go in the bay. You're saying you got a deep draft? Well, I've been called many things, yes. Okay. So, early in the war, the Confederate government decided that it was not going to defend the entire coast. But it was going to concentrate its forces on what it would consider their most important ports and harbors. But, I mean, that only makes sense because Confederacy, small. America, big. America easily shuts down, well, easily subjective, but shuts down trade for the Confederacy, blockades. So once the once New Orleans fell in April of 1862, Mobile is now the only major port on the eastern Gulf that it the Confederacy could defend. So this became the center for blockade running on the Gulf. So most of the trade between the Confederacy and Havana and, you know, other Caribbean ports passed through Mobile. Hmm. There were a number of attempts to break the blockade, but of course they're not going to be able to be large enough to really make any lasting impact on it at all. Now, there was a very embarrassing incident for the Navy, for the U.S. Navy, and that's when the CSS Florida ran through the blockade into Mobile on September 4th, 1862, 
And then she unloaded and then escaped through the exact same blockade <laughs> January 15th, the next year. That's a gutsy uh, captain. Yeah, very embarrassing for the, the, the blockade captains. So Flag Officer Farragut was assigned to command the West Gulf Blockading Squadron. And included in his orders was to capture Mobile, as well as New Orleans. The early diversion of the squadron was meant that the lower Mississippi and the cities around there weren't going to receive the Navy's full attention until after the fall of Vicksburg, which happened in July of 1863. So once... You know, the Confederacy started retreating everywhere. They were like, let's go to mobile. Everybody, just go to mobile and let's shore up the defense. Okay, makes sense. So they strengthened Fort Morgan and Fort Gaines there, which are sitting there at the entrance of the bay. And then they were like, you know what? That channel right there, Grant's Pass, let's put a small fort there. And they decided to put up Fort Powell, which is a little bitty fort, the baby fort, if you would. I would. Okay. And they also put in obstructions into Grant's Pass, which were sets of piles and other impediments, which also diverted the tidal flow to Heron Pass. What does that mean? That means that when the tide comes in, it goes into all these inlets and stuff that's already been carved out. When you block a a channel, that water's still going to come. It's blocked. Now it's going to go somewhere else. Hmm. That's not good for the environment. Well, I'm sure they had uh, probably more urgent and pressing matters to attend to than the environment. Isn't that the excuse we still use today? Not me personally, but yes, many do. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you say we, I assumed you meant you and me. Well, no, that was the colloquial we. Oh, the royal we. Okay. Yes. All right, so let's go over the defenses. On the Confederate side, their land defenses. Now, the area were in, was within the jurisdiction of the Department of Alabama, Mississippi, and East Louisiana which was led by Major General Danby H. Murray. And the headquarters was actually right there in Mobile. So that made it easy. Now, Murray was not a brave man. So instead of being there in headquarters, he decided he was not going to be there in person. Oh, like a remote worker? Kind of yeah. from a distance? That's, yeah. Yeah, ahead of yeah. his time, really. Yeah, so he wasn't there during the battle and siege. He was issuing orders from afar, which means the commander on the ground was Brigadier General Richard L. Page. He is the, the guy who's really in charge. Oh, yes. So the Confederate Army manned three forts. Fort Morgan, front... That was built in 1834. It had 46 guns, 11 of them rifled, and it was garrisoned by about 600 peoples across from St. Mor- uh, yeah, Morgan. Yeah, they're saints now, aren't they? Across from Fort Morgan on the other side of the channel was Fort Gaines. This one had about 26 guns with a garrison of roughly 600 peoples. And the command of the this fort was Colonel Charles D. Anderson when Page was not there. And then at the western end of the bay was Fort Powell, the smallest of the three. It had 18 guns and 140 men. And when Page wasn't there, this was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James M. Williams. These forts did have flaws. And the big one is that their guns were unprotected against fire from behind them. Oh. Yeah. So let's hope they don't get encircled. 
Well, let's uh, listen to the end and find out. I'm not skipping to the end. Spoilers! No, 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 no. I'm saying the listener should keep listening. This is a teaser, you know? I'm going to keep my eye on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the numbers involved are really lopsided. But don't let the numbers fool you on how effectively they would actually fight. I mean, the war is winding down at this point, And people made assumptions that because they're losing, that their morale is going to be, met, is going to be bad. So... We'll have to wait and see. So there was a department called the Confederate Torpedo Bureau. You should know all about torpedoes now. The guy in charge of this was Major General Gabrielle J. Rains, And he planted 67 torpedoes across the entrance of the bay. Whoa. Now, just to clarify, these are mines as they were called torpedoes back in the day. Now, they did leave a gap on the eastern side of the channel so that their blockade runners could get in there and friendly vessels could also get in and out, you know, without blowing up. Right, yes. Now, they did mark the minefield with buoys. And, you know, Farragut looked out and was like, that's a mine, that's a mine, that's a mine, that's a mine, that's a mine. Now, we think that the purpose of doing this was not to sink enemy vessels, but trying to make them go closer to Fort Morgan so they could open up on them with their guns. I see. It was to communicate, hey, there are mines here, so go around, and then if they go around, they're within the range of the superior forts. I don't know if I'd call them superior. Well, versus Powell, for example, like you said, that was the smaller one. It was a baby. The baby. You don't want to hurt the, the baby. baby. Now, the sea defense for the Confederacy. They had three small sidewheel gunboats stationed in the bay. The CSS Selma, who had four guns. The CSS Morgan, six. And the CSS Gaines, also with six. They also had with them the ironclad, the Tennessee. Now, she also did have six guns, but was much more resilient because armor. A little fun fact, the Tennessee was built on the Alabama River near Selma, and her guns were prepared under the direction of Commander Caspi App Roger Jones. This is the guy who commanded the CSS Virginia during the famous Virginia Monitor duel. Oh, okay. So... Selma isn't, that's, it's inland a bit, right? So they were just producing more ships and then delivering them via river, I suppose. Not something I would have uh, thought of. That's interesting. Well, you build ships wherever you can. Yeah, I guess, and it'd be easier to protect in a way, like not as many naval threats. Not necessarily. There was many, many river battles. Huh. Not something I'd heard about. Well, you haven't been listening to the podcast, and I have to discipline to you for that. Oh, I hope I don't get busted down back to third officer. Although I would accept it, because I need to own my mistakes. <laughs> so, Buchanan, now an admiral, is going to lead this small flotilla. So, because of having to prepare really quickly for the mobile bay, she was actually launched before her machinery and guns were in place. They towed the Tennessee down to Mobile Bay to where they and that's where they were going to complete her. Okay. So once she was, once that was done, they had her cross the Dog River Bar to get into the lower bay. Now she drew 13 feet and the bar only had nine feet at high tide of clearance. So, to get her across, workers had to build a set of Cassians that they called camels, and these were fitted to her sides and pumped out. Huh. Now, these barely lifted her enough to clear the bar. They finally do. 
and she enters the lower bay. Okay. Now you're understanding the difficulty of deep draft. Yes. <laughs> now, unfortunately, Tennessee was the only one they were able to get down there. Now, they did have plans to bring others down there, and Buchanan had hoped that he would have at least eight, which included a pair of floating batteries. But the South, at this time, their manufacturing and transportation were starting to flatline. So this, amb this program was way too ambitious for their failing resources. So, the Union Navy, the guy in charge, Admiral G. Farragut. So, he brought, he brought about 18 vessels. Eight of these were just normal, conventional, wooden-hulled ships carrying a lot of guns for broadside firing. There were two small gunboats, the Kennebec and the Itasca. The Galena was once a experimental ironclad, and they found that her armor was pretty much trying to sink her, so they took it off. Oh. And, yeah. There were three double-enders. This is a type of boat that was developed to navigate the channels of the interior rivers. Okay. Then there were four of the ironclad monitors. Two of these were the improved versions, the Manhattan and Tecumseh. These had two large guns in a turret. Wow. The other two were the Chickasaw and Winnebago. They were twin turreted river monitors, and they had four guns in total. Were the technological advances about the same on both sides? Because that's that sounds pretty advanced. That the twin turreted monitor class did um did both sides have about roughly the same naval technology? When the Confederacy was able to buy them from the French or the English or whoever, but no, they really didn't have the same uh what? technological development. I see. Because one side had all the resources and the other side had very few. So that stifles creativity. I could see that. So the army. They needed the army because they were, those were the guys that were going to take and hold the forts. Which means that the navy and the army would have to work together. So Farragut would work with Major General Edward Richard Sprigg Canby. Lots of long names I've noticed so far. Oh, many initials. Oh, yeah, they love their names. They love their names. I really feel like I'm underserving myself. Now, this major general, he calculated that they, he would need 5,000 soldiers to be able to have be able to land behind Fort Morgan and cut it off from mobile from communications with mobile. But unfortunately, as you know, war happens. You know the you know this name, right? Ulysses S. Grant. Oh yeah, I've I've uh, held many of his many uh, paper notes when trying to buy something. Mm. Yeah, he made a call for help. He needed lots of troops in the Virgin Virginia theater, so. That's, you know, so when Ulysses S. Grant, who is the general-in-chief, calls for reinforcements, you send reinforcements. Right. So that means Canberry now has less guys to use, and he's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to have enough to be able to take the fort now, but I can take Dolphin Island, which means I can secure contact between the fleet inside the bay and the support in the Gulf. Ah. Uh -huh. I was wondering what the advantage was, because Dolphin Island sounds like a great uh, vacation spot, but that's probably not the priority in war. Right. Yeah, these guys recognize that they would not be able to threaten mobile, but if they took the lower bay, that would be enough to bluster the blockading fleet. So they were like, you know what? We're, we're not going to cancel. We're just going to do it. All right. 
So, of course, communication is key. So Camby was like, you know what? Let's put a contingent of my signal corpsmen among all the, the ships. And Farragut was like, you know what? I'm not a jerk. So I'm going to recognize that that's a good idea. And we're going to do that. So this meant that there was almost a, a casual mingling of Navy and Army. And they figured out quickly that this actually works really well. Was this one of the earliest examples of a, like a mix, uh, use of mixed forces? No. Okay. No. Uh, mixed forces have, been, have to be used all during most conflicts. This is just when they recognize that, you know, look at this. We can actually get along. We don't have to fight each other for superiority. Right. So they land about 1,500 men about 50 miles west of Fort Gaines to prepare for the siege. The troops that they used consisted mostly of infantry from the 77th Illinois Volunteer Infantry Regiment, the 34th Iowa Volunteer Infantry Regiment, and the 96th Ohio Infantry. These guys march until the, they, they march the entire day from the 3rd to the 4th of August when they found some skirmish lines or they looked at them and they're like, look, that's my tea kettle. This was ours. We were already here. It's got to have some mixed emotions associated with it. Eh, that happened all the time. So, yeah, they, they, they re-entrenched about a half mile from Fort Gaines. So the, the guy in charge of the army, you know, Major General Gordon Granger of the landing force, actually, he was, like, ready to launch right away. He's like, we're here. Let's go. But Farragut was like, no, just hold on. Hold on. Let's wait for the rest of my fleet to get here because his last monitor wasn't there yet. This was the USS Takuma. It was delayed at Pensacola for just a little bit. Mm. Was it spring break? I'm just kidding. Continue. It's August, so I, I don't probably not. Yeah, they, they may not have honored spring break during our wartime. That's probably why. Maybe fall break. Maybe. Maybe back yeah. back to school spectacular, something like that. Or maybe it was Florida Man Day. Yep. I bet that's what it was. That's what it was. Okay. Florida Man Day. Now, Farragut was almost ready to proceed with only, you know, three of his monitors instead of all four. But he decided he was going to go ashore on Dolphin Island and found that the found that his fleet really wasn't ready to move just yet. They still had to do some more, a little bit more preparations. And then he saw men trickling into the fort. He's like, oh, crap, they're getting reinforced. Yeah, we need that fourth monitor. Now, at the end of it all, Farragut concluded that because of seeing that and delaying a little bit longer, it actually worked to his advantage. Because those reinforcements didn't have any effect on the battle, but they did a surrender along with the rest of the troops, which means they had a lot more men to surrender to them. Wow. You take more men out of the, out of the fight. So they started unloading the army guys ashore, and Discumsa made her appearance, and Farragut started positioning his fleet. They lashed the 14 wooden hold vessels in pairs together because there was a tactic that a admiral had used at Port Hudson, Louisiana, that worked for them. What they, the intent was if one of the ships were disabled because of enemy fire, the other one would be able to keep going and tow it along with her. So the monitors formed a column and led the way into the bay, moved in close to Fort Morgan. And then the other ships, they would form double columns and pass on the port side of the monitors. So the monitors, monitors could 
shield the non-armored boats from the fort's fire. That's pretty, pretty good tactic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then when the Confederate fleet would make its appearance, the monitors would move in and attack, while the rest of the fleet would fight the gunboats. I see. And that's why it was critical to have that fourth one show up. Well, yeah, four monitors against one. Yeah. Ironclad? That's not going to last long. So on August 5th, the conditions were just about perfect. The tide was coming in, so Farragut had his ships reduce the steam pressure to minimize damage if their boilers are to hit. And that means he had to rely on the current to give them speed. The breeze was going southwest, and he's like, that's perfect. Because that means the smoke from the guns would go away when we could see. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. And the smoke would actually be put into the faces of the fort, guns of the fort, guys who were, uh, you know, trying to defend the fort. They would be blind. Huh. That's brilliant. So they start putting the plan into effect and they start approaching the fort. So those four monitors head head in and then the second column starts going in as well. This was the led by the USS Brooklyn lashed to the Octorada. I'm guessing that's how you pronounce that weird name. Brooklyn was in the lead because she carried four chase guns that she could fire forward. And the other large ships only had two, so more cannons to the fore. Okay. Now, she also had a device for removing mines on her as well. This was referred to as the cowcatcher. All right, so the Confederate ships are now ready for the attack, and they move into position to intercept the fleet just beyond the minefield. So at 0647 to Tecumseh fires the first shot right at the forts. And the forts were like, that's not nice. Return fire. And they reply with gusto. And that's how it starts. And then everybody's firing at everybody else. The ships in the second column, except the Brooklyn, they're not able to return fire on the Confederate boats because, you know, they're flashed with another Right. Boat. So they concentrated on the fort as well. So you have the monitors here on the starboard side, right facing the forts, firing off. Then you got two two sets of wooden ships lashed together. The columns go on this way. So the ones on the port side are firing at the fleet, and the starboard side are firing at the fort. That's cool. So because of this, all of these naval guns going right into the fort, they pretty much suppress this fort pretty quickly which means that most of the damage is coming from the enemy fleet they're what eight guns in total not much but it can make a difference yeah so just after all this starts Tuscumsa uh, moves past the fort and goes towards the Tennessee this was apparently part of her orders now, it seems that the commander, a guy named Craven, either decided to ignore the minefield or forgot all about it and didn't stay east of the minefield. He took his ship directly across it. Did he make it? Oh, no, almost immediately a mine went off. Oh, okay. She filled with water and sank about three minutes later. Wow. 21 of 114 were saved. The captain went down with his ship, so we can't ask him what the hell. Now, a guy named Captain Brooklyn was confused by all his orders to stay on the port side of the monitors and to stay to the right of the minefield. So he was like, okay, guys, let's just stop. Stop right here. Uh, Farragut, what? What do we do? Hello, Mr. Admiral guy, what do we do? Now, Farragut's not going to stop his flagship. No. And so he sends Captain Drayton, or he tells Captain Drayton to send Hartford and the Brooklyn into the lead of the column. 
how how was this communicated? I mean, this is before radio, so I assume it's a uh, fl- flagman or semaphore. Semaphore, okay. And maybe and probably shouting. I was my first guess was shouting, but I guessed with the guns going off and the yeah distances. Yes, okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Hey, you know, probably rude gestures of the fingers. Yeah, the universal language. Yes. So this made Farragut's flagship drift into the minefield. Farragut looks around him and goes, you know what? Most of these things have probably been submerged way too long and they're not going to be effective anymore. So when he goes through, the rest of the column follows him. Oh, no kidding. 14 warships. Every single one gets through unscathed. Whoa. So was I... uh, I feel bad for Craven all of a sudden. (laughs) Why? Well, I don't know. That's just the the luck of the draw. I guess so. So the Tennessee did not have very good speed. So they're not able to ram the the Union boats as they pass. Mm Mm-hmm. So this allowed Farragut to order his smaller, faster gunboats to attack the three Confederate gunboats. So the Metacomet unlashes from Hartford, and they capture the Selma. Wow. And fire from the gunboats. They put a lot of hole into the gains, and they ended up beaching her to keep her from sinking. But then once the crew got off, they decided, you know what? Well, this is a civil war. We got to burn something. Let's burn our boat. <laughs> I, well, I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time, but you know, it's funny now. It's funny now. That's, that's the U.S. Navy history podcast, right? Uh, drinking game. Whenever anything ever goes uh, gets burnt, you take a drink. Oh. So I'm taking a drink. Well, let me see what I can do. All right. So the Morgan, she doesn't put up a resi- any resistance. She's like, I don't want to get hurt. So let's just get out of here. And she she goes right over to Fort Morgan to be protected by her guns. And the next night, she weaves her way through the anchored Union fleet and out to sea. Oh, wow. She's like, I'm not dealing with this at all. That's surprising. I guess not completely, but I didn't expect that. Why? I don't know. I just... I, I have this idealistic vision that warriors fight to the bitter end a lot of times, but the reality of the human condition would, you know, interfere with that ideal. Yeah, no, they, it, they, they don't fight to the bitter end. Right. They, they bite, they fight until there's like, okay, I'm not going to become one of those bodies there. I'm done. Right. Sorry, I'm done. Please. No more. Especially in the face of overwhelming odds, like you start counting ships and go, "Uh uh-oh. Well, that's why for casualties, uh, you'll see it in a lot of battles, the casualties that killed in action are actually really low. Injuries are a lot more than the killed, Mm -hmm. and then the captures are in the thousands sometimes. So you'll have like 15 killed, 35 injured, 1,500 captured. It, do, it doesn't take much. Right. It also depends on the unit, too. Some units do get fanatical. Yeah, we won't see World War II numbers until World War II. It makes sense. So, Ferry expects Tennessee to take shelter under the guns of Fort Morgan while he rests his ships and assesses, you know, the damage that he got in the middle of the bay. But Buchanan, he says, no, we're going to take the entire fleet single-handed. More than likely, he wanted to repeat his ramming tactics that had been so successful for him at Hampton Roads, you know, a couple years before now. Right. But, of course, Buchanan's not explaining why he thinks this is going to work. This time, the ships he was facing were moving... And he was up against three monitors, not one. Yeah, that's a big couple of differences. Yeah. So because Tennessee was so very slow, it actually became the target 
of ramming instead of being the ramming or the rammer. A number of the sloops on the U.S. side managed to ram the Tennessee. One of them had been fitted with an iron shield just below her bow for this exact purpose. Unfortunately, none of these ramming collisions hurt the ironclad. In every case, the ramming vessel suffered more damage. Wow. That makes sense, though. Yeah. The shots from the fleet bounced off of the Tennessee's armor, but Tennessee was not able to take advantage of all of this because she had inferior powder and lots of misfires because of this powder. So then more monitors arrived, and Tennessee at this point was just about dead in the water. And then all of a sudden, you see her smokestack just shoot straight up into the air. Her, She's not able to build up steam pressure anymore. Boiler pressure okay. because of this. Yeah, I, I would imagine not. Her rudder chains were also parted, so she cannot steer. And the shutters on some of her gun ports are now jamming, which means that the guns behind them are now useless. So the uh, Chickasaw and Manhattan just pull right up to her and just start unloading on her at very close range with her with 15-inch guns. Yikes. So this is starting to be very, very effective. It bends the iron shielding and shatters the oak backing. Fragmentations, wounds are starting to happen on the, her crew. Buchanan himself is wounded. So the captain of the Tennessee was like, okay, okay, okay. We need to surrender, Admiral. Please, for the love of God, you, lo you lost this time. Let us surrender. Look, your leg is broken. Okay, you're messed up too. And so the, the Admiral was like, okay, yes, we will surrender. This thing lasted. About three hours. The whole battle. From first shot to surrender. Wow. That's say, that seems not that long, but at the same time, if you're in the middle of it, I'm sure that lasts, it feels like it lasts an eternity. Well, remember, this is just the fleet. We still have the forts. Oh, right. So while the, uh, the fleet battle's over, the fort battle is not. That was a lot of things that went wrong on the Tennessee all at once. Was that um, poor shipbuilding, or was this common? That, that seems sabotage, maybe? If you take enough punishment, it doesn't matter how thick your armor is. Things are going to start breaking. Yeah, that's true. I mean, all the ramming alone, much less the guns. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are very tough vessels, and just the punishment it got would have destroyed a wooden ship a hundred times over. Right. Still, those shots are going to cause vibrations, and they're going to start loosening things. And it's, you can only take so much before stuff, even with heavy armor, starts breaking. That makes sense. All right, so the fleet's out of the way. So now Farragut is able to turn his attention to the forts. So he takes the Chickasaw and tells him to lob a few shells over at Fort Powell. And then, you know, support the troops going to Fort Gaines. Now, not, neither of the forts really had very significant damage or casualties. But the bombardment was able to reveal the vulnerability that they had from the rear. So the guy over at Fort Powell, Colonel Williams, he asked General Page, what do we do? We Our fleet's gone. We're receiving fire. What do we do? And Paige is like, you know what? When it's no longer tenable, save your garrison. But hold out as long as you can. And so Williams was like, okay, cool. We're out. <laughs> yeah, cannot be saved. He spiked his guns, blew it, and blew his, his magazines. 
and they got the hell out of there. So Anderson over at uh, Fort Gaines, he held out a little bit longer. He, they, he was also vastly outnumbered. And when the U.S. troops start bringing their artillery up to close range, and, you know, they're not even being shot at at this time anymore. They're pretty much able to, 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 to route them. Anderson, he opens communication with Granger and Farragut and puts up a white flag, ignoring Page's order saying not to do that. And they surrender. So now two forts down, one to go. As soon as both of them surrender, Granger, he goes, let's go to Dolphin Island and get behind Fort Morgan. And that's what they do. They land there without any opposition, four miles away, because that's out of range of the guns. Right. And they rushed it. Communication is cut for mobile. Granger sets his men to take the fort on all the regular approaches, pretty much establishing a sequence of trenches and protective lines to just get closer and closer and closer. So dig a little, get in there. Dig a little, get in there. Dig a little, get in there. And they just get closer to closer and to- closer until they could just breach those walls really easily that's incredible i mean just kind of the the different steps that they plotted through to to systematically disable these defenses it's really well thought out well not only that but the monitors were bombarding as well every once in a while oh yeah so that is helping to keep their heads down and their attention diverted to the the bombardment Mm-hmm. Now the 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 forward thrust was stopped for a little bit because a storm comes in, and so you know when your uh, siege works start filling up with water, it makes it kind of a little hard to uh, to do anything. Yeah, hard to keep your powder dry. Yeah, but. Uh, while that was happening, they do a day-long bombardment while, you know, the water was draining out from 16 siege mortars and 18 guns of different sizes. Wow. Fleet. That's a lot of firepower. My goodness. Yeah. So inside the fort, Gerald Page is like, this bombardment is BS. Guys, I have powder in my magazines, 80,000 pounds of powder. You're going to blow me up. So he orders his troops to bring it out and flood it. It's pretty smart. Make it inert, but then also limit your ability to fight back. Mm-hmm. Now, the only time the magazine was actually threatened was when the woodworks of the Citadel catch fire. And once that fire goes, once the fleet sees that fire, you're like, oop, target. And yeah, the, the bombardment increases. So now Paige is like, oh, Jesus, I guess the other guys were right. Uh, let's spike your guns and white flag. I'm sorry. We give up. We're sorry about this. You were right the first time. Please don't hurt us anymore. All right. So. There was some things that come at, came out of this battle that were pre- are pretty famous. Um, one anecdote of this battle was that Farragut had himself lashed to the mast during the passage of St. Morgan. This brought a image of absolute resolve, saying that if his ship was to be sunk in the battle, he was going to go down with her. I'm sure that was a, a big morale boost. Yeah, well... There, the, the truth to this matter is he was lashed to the rigging of the mainmast, but it was precautionary instead of defiance. This, it, uh, it happened after the battle had started and smoke from the guns had, of course, clouded the air. 
So in, to get a better view of what was going on around him, he climbed into the Hartford's rigging. And once he was high enough and saw that a fall would probably kill him, the captain of the boat sends one of his guys up there with a piece of line to secure the admiral to make sure he did not fall. Well, that's sensible. Now, the, ca- the, the admiral was like, never mind, never mind, I'm all right. But the sailor was like, yeah, sorry, Admiral. And he did what the captain said and tied one end of the line to a, to the forward shroud and another to the Admiral, around the Admiral, and to the after shroud. You're staying here. You're not going to die now. Yeah, at least not through negligence. Yeah. And then later during the battle, they did it again. Because when the Tennessee made a attack on the Union fleet, Farragut again climbs into the mizzen rigging. And the captain was like, oh, Jesus, Admiral, stop this. And sends a lieutenant this time up there and ties him to the rigging again. I, I think they were starting to get tired of him climbing up into the rigging. Into the ri- rigging. Yeah, I've had, I've had kids that... Uh act similarly it's like stop climbing on everything get down no well, that's just a kid thing my kids do the same thing and apparently admirals in the u.s navy during the civil war conflict uh do the same thing yeah sometimes so the most popular account of this battle is when the brooklyn slowed down when the tuscumsa crossed her path farragut was like why we're, why are we not moving ahead? Or why, why, would, why did she slow down? Why was she not moving? And when they said uh, there are torpedoes in our path, he is said to have said, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Now, the historians do have a problem with this because this account did not appear until a couple of years later in uh. print. So, they're like, I don't know. It sounds good. I've seen it on a t-shirt. Yes. Uh, Some forms of the story, of course, are unlikely. But the most widespread is that he shouted to the Brooklyn, damn the torpedoes, go ahead. Men at the battle were like, I doubt that any verbal communication could have been heard above all that gunfire anyway. More likely, if it happened, it said that if it is that he said to the captain of Hart of the Hartford, "Damn the torpedoes, four bells, uh, four bells, Captain Drayton." Then he would shout to the commander of the Metacomet, lashed to the side of the Hartford, "Go ahead, Juet, uh, Juet, full speed," and then. As time goes and, you know, the telephone game goes, it comes down to damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I was imagining when you said difficulty talking over the guns, I was wondering, well, did they, he say all of this in semaphore or? But the way you described how it was communicated makes a lot of sense. And yeah. how it got um, shrunk down to a soundbite. Just even mm-hmm. back then. Oh, yeah. It said it was uh, print bites. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, prior to the battle, the Army and the Navy, they used completely different signals. The Navy used semaphore, you know, colored flags, and that would be used to impart messages that had to be decoded. Where the Army was experimenting with a far simpler wing-wag system developed by Colonel Albert J. Meyer just a little while ago. In order to communicate with Army forces ashore after the fleet was inside Mobile Bay, several members of the Signal Corps would put, were put on to major ships of the Farragut's fleet. They were expected to stay the hell out of the way until they were needed. Makes sense. Uh, for example, those on the Hartford were assigned to assist the surgeon, which means they were stationed below decks. When the Brooklyn encountered her difficulties with the Tecumseh and the minefield, Captain Avery from the Brooklyn wanted to have clarification of her orders. And 
he wanted it to be done quickly, quicker than the naval semaphore could do. So he asked the army guys to relay his question to the flagship. So in order to read the message, the signal corpsman on the Hartford was brought up from below and pretty much stayed up there through the rest of the flight. And Farragut was like, you know what? These guys, they did good. So General Page, that guy, after the fort was surrendered, the the U.S. found that all of its guns had been spiked and the gun carriages, carriages and the other supplies destroyed. And a lot of the guys were like, you know what? This probably all happened while the white flag was in the air, which means that these guys are war criminals now because this is violation of the rules of war, at least, you know, at this time. And they thought this so hardly and so strongly that Major General Canby made a formal accusation. And they took Page and tried him in New Orleans by a three-man council of war. And then they found him not guilty. Now, I'm, I'm fascinated by... So the earliest I've heard about war crimes or conventions of war would be like the Geneva Convention type stuff. But even before then, I'd heard in the Civil War there were like gentlemanly agreements. Like, how dare you blow off my uh, soldier's foot, sir, with your landmine type of thing. But this... What is... Did they have prearranged conventions before they began the battle or how did that get communicated or was it understood it was understood huh so once you surrender you stop all war related battle related activity oh yeah okay otherwise you're still waging war you didn't actually surrender right now that makes sense so to finish this whole battle up the this battle was it was it was not normal by the standards set by the armies of the Civil War. It was by the naval standards, but it was only a little bit less bloody than the Battle of Fort Jackson and Saint Philip, and also the Battle of Hampton Roads. The U.S. fleet had lost one hundred and fifty men and one hundred and seventy wounded. On the Confederate side. 12 were dead and 19 wounded. What, when you bring more people, more boats? Yeah, more risk of casualties. And, and, and I made that, the, the audience can't see your your confused face. So I'm, I'm just pointing yeah, that out Yeah, thank you, because I was like, what? Why so little? That seems, I was expecting far greater numbers, but I guess uh, when you, like when the Tennessee was disabled and when the forts were just realizing that they were, up a creek, the surrender was the option. And so it just it eliminates further casualties. Surrender saves lives. Yeah. So the Army losses, the Union, they, in the Siege of Fort Morgan, lost one man and seven wounded. The Confederate losses only, we, we don't know the, the actual numbers, but it's said that they're, it's only a little bit more than what the Union suffered okay so the continued presence of the union army near mobile pretty much meant that the confederate army is trapped and murray realizes that the numbers that were on the other side of his men were inadequate to say the least but you know he also was like if we lose mobile that's going to strike a severe blow to the public morale. Absolutely. So he was like, I'm not sending any of my men or artillery anywhere else. They can just pet a duck. Uh, <laughs> so because Mobile does technically remain unconquered, the significance victory for Farragut initially didn't have very good didn't have very much effect on the public morale in the North. But as time passes and a number of other Union victories start coming up and start showing that the war was indeed winding down, you know, 
the the battle starts to begins to loom larger and larger. So when Atlanta falls, the well, let's in the words of historian James M. McPherson, quote. In retrospect, the victory at Mobile Bay suddenly took a new importance as the first blow of a lethal one-two punch. The dispersal of the northern morale, bad morale, pretty much assured Lincoln's re-election, which was regarded as a continuation of the war. Right. And with the capture of Fort Morgan, the campaign for Lower Mobile Bay was now done. Yay, we won! <laughs> so the mobile did pretty much last with the rest of the war because, you know, there was not enough men that Farragut had to be able to go up there and take it. So they pretty much just blockaded it. The city did finally fall at the last days of the war. So, little fun fact before we go there are a number of Civil War shipwrecks from this battle that are still in the bay today. No kidding. This, these include the American Diver, the CSS Gaines, the CSS Huntsville, the USS Felipe, the CSS Phoenix, the USS Randolph, the USS Tuscumsa, and the CSS Tuscaloosa. So, why don't you go get your diving pack on and go, uh, go, treasure go check hunting? them out. Yeah. Nice. Well, I'll... I'll... Yes, I'll have to purchase some diving equipment. <laughs> All right, so next time we're going to move on to the Franklin-Nashville campaign on the Western Theater of the American Civil War. Nice. So with our partnership with HeroCards.us, at the end of every show, we honor one of our fallen angels. Today we are honoring Petty Officer Third Class Douglas J. Dane. His hometown was Utsburg, Wisconsin. He was with the 3rd Marine Amphibious Force, 3rd Civil Affairs Group, CAP 242. He received the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was June 1st, 1970. Killed in action in Vietnam. He was 21 years old. Douglas Doc Dane enlisted in the U.S. Navy and entered the service via the Reserve Military, enlisting at the Sheboygan Naval Reserve Training Center on March 3rd, 1968. After a year of training, he was called active duty and entered the Navy Hospital Corpsman Class A School in San Diego, California. After graduation, Dane was assigned as a Navy Hospital Corpsman at the Naval Hospital in Guam for one year. Beginning his Vietnam tour on April 5th, 1970, Dane was killed less than two months later, along with two U.S. Marines. One of the three men stepped on a landmine as they were setting up a headquarters camp in the Hyang-Yang district of Kangnam province, 30 miles of the city of Da Nang. The camp was being established for the U.S. Marine 2nd Combined Action Group, 3rd Amphibious Force. Dane is honored at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., panel 10W, line 129. So, Petty Officer, 3rd Class, Dane, thank you. So, probationary XO, would you like to take us out? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. Uh, let me see if I can remember all the details of where you can find us. Uh, you can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, hold on, usn history pod so at usn history pod and last time i forgot to say you can join us on the discord but now i'm saying you can join us on the discord and you can find those details in the show notes as well as uh links to hero cards and i think i got everything oh, we're on youtube now oh. we're on the tubes of you yes visit us on youtube you never know maybe we'll put our faces on there one day <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. Oh, I think Kristoff's scared. Uh, scared. Oh, yes. No, I'm not shying away from that accusation at all. A little <laughs> bit. I have, I have a face for radio. Well, thank you guys for joining us. And as always, fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. Goodbye.
U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank <laughs> you.